0: Thank you, Jim. Uh, we continue in our series today. Everybody doing all right? Yeah? Okay, good. Good to see you today. We're continuing in our um, series today called You Ask For It. We're, um, we're just taking questions from folks or particular doctrinal issues that folks might have, and they've submitted those to me. And so um, I've shared uh, over the last couple of weeks kind of God's responses through the scriptures to those questions. And so the question that comes to us today is uh, the difference between uh, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It seems like, in some ways, when you're reading through the Old Testament, that God seems very harsh, that God maybe even seemed very cruel in the Old Testament. And so, how do you reconcile that with the God that we see in the New Testament who appears loving and gracious? and merciful. Our scripture for today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's the last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. And as is our custom, I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading from God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. Let's read these verses together. Uh, Ecclesiastes writes, "Now Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, I want to first establish the question. Again, the question was, um, how come when you're reading through the Old Testament, God appears to be harsh, God appears to be cruel? How do you reconcile that with the God of the New Testament. So first of all, I want to establish the question. I want to show you some of God's harshness, some of what we might call his cruelty in the Old Testament. Look at a couple of verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 7 uh, captures um, the Israelites, God giving the Israelites commands to go into the promised land and to deal with the local population that's there, rather than to go in and say, hey, look, we're taking over the territory. Y'all are going to have to follow by and abide by our rules now. God instead says for them to go in and annihilate the local population, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 2 says, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, God telling Moses here, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Don't let them live. Um, you, all, you are to show them no mercy. First Samuel chapter 15, God tells King Saul to go and wage war against a people group called the Amalekites. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, God, listen to what he instructs. It says, now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death the men, the women, the children, and the infants. I mean, it doesn't sound like a God of compassion and mercy and love and grace and understanding here, does it? On another occasion, God instructs Moses to go and speak to a rock. And when he speaks to the rock, it's going to burst forth with water, and the people of Israel will be able to have water while they're out there wandering around in the desert. And so Moses, instead of obeying God's instruction to speak to the rock, he comes up with his two of his staff and he hits the rock. Just a small little difference here. Numbers chapter 20 and verse 12 because of that, God says, because you disobeyed me, because you hit the rock instead of spoke to the rock, you will not bring this community into the land of Israel. So after 40 years of wandering around in the desert, uh, leading the people of God, after 40 years of being supremely faithful, this is Moses, after being supremely faithful to the God of the universe, because Moses hit the rock instead of spoke to the rock, God says, "Uh uh-uh, Bub, sorry, you're not going to get to go into the promised land. And the Old Testament is filled with scenario after scenario like this where God... Uh, orders people killed, where God punishes individuals and nations unmercifully and with great finality. Juxtapose that with Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus stood on the side of the oppressed. Jesus cared for the poor. Jesus pushed back against the oppressor. The very picture of the cross is one of love and of mercy. Listen to what Jesus said from the cross. Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And just as with the Old Testament examples of God's wrath, here we could quote verse after verse after verse in the New Testament where God shows great mercy, where God shows great grace. So, what's going on here? Did God change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Perhaps in some conversations that you've had with people around this issue, this is a stripping point for some folks to come to faith in Christ because they say, I read about that God of the Old Testament. He seems so mean, he seems so angry. And so some people say, well, maybe God has changed. Maybe his essential essence, who God is, has changed from Old Testament to New Testament. And I want to answer that question, and I want to answer it very, very clearly. The answer is no, God has not changed. And the reason for that is because God does not change. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who, referring to the Father here, does not change like shifting shadows. And finally, Hebrews chapter 1, the middle of verse 2 says, you, referring to the Lord, remain the same. Friends, that is God's essential nature. Who God is never changes, nor does God age. God is eternal. He is forever. He is unchanging. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, you are the same yesterday, the same today, and you'll be the same forever. Friends, this is the consistent, the unequivocal teaching throughout the Scriptures that God does not change. So that's not the answer to why the God of the Old Testament appears harsh and cruel, and then we get to the New Testament and all of a sudden we see love and mercy on display. That's not the answer that God changes because God does not change. So how then do we account for this seeming change from Old Testament to New Testament, at least in the way that God deals with people? Well, I would want to challenge the question itself. Uh, See, in the New Testament, the cross of Christ is largely in view. That is, the cross of Christ represents God's grace. It represents God's mercy. The cross represents God's love for us, and that's on display, and that appears to dominate the conversation in the New Testament. But just because it dominates the conversation in the New Testament doesn't mean that somehow we don't see in the New Testament God's judgment. We don't see in the New Testament God's wrath. So let's take a look at a couple of passages of scripture in the New Testament that reveal God's judgment. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Doesn't sound like kicks and giggles to me. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. That is, God won't be made a fool of. And here's how we know God won't be made a fool of. A man reaps what he sows, verse 8, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The Bible anticipating destruction, falling on the heads of those who ignore God's commands. See, the New Testament writers were not unaware of God's wrath. The New Testament writers were not ignorant of God's judgment. From the lips of Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus rails against the doctors of the law, rails against the religious leaders of his day. He um, issues out in Matthew chapter 23, eight different woes or eight different curses or judgments against the religious leaders of his day. For example, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea, to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Yikes! Ouch, Jesus! Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30, Jesus tells a story of the parable of the talents. And there's in the story, there's these three guys, and the three guys are each given a different amount of money, a different talent, um, and then they're supposed to do something with that. And so in the story, the first two guys, they are, are do something good with their talents that God's given them, and God rewards them in the story. And, but then the last guy, he just went and buried his in the ground, and so he didn't do anything like what God had wanted him to do. Look at what awaits this guy, verse 30. And throw that worthless servant, this is from the mouth of Jesus, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, we're just scratching the surface here of example after example after example in the New Testament from the lips of Jesus himself of God's wrath and God's judgment. I mean, the whole book of Revelation, friends, is about God's judgment. It is about God's wrath being poured out. Um, It's just that, again, when we read the New Testament, the cross dominates our thinking as we're reading through it. And so the dominant theme of the cross is God's love, and God's great grace. Now, flip, now let's kind of flip that over. Is the mercy of God absent from the Old Testament? Right, because that's what we're assuming. We're assuming that God's wrath and his judgment are all, all over the Old Testament, and so there's no mercy at all. Well, let's see if that's the case. Look at Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. God sends Jonah to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, to call the people of Nineveh to repentance. These people have been acting poorly. They've been acting in a God dishonoring way and God has had it with them. And so God sends Jonah to the people of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, to go and tell them to repent of their sins so that God will relent in his coming judgment. And the people do turn to the Lord. They do repent of their sins. And look at God's response. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways... He had compassion on them and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. See, God relented. God showed compassion, great compassion, here in an Old Testament story. Another, for for example... Second Chronicles chapter twenty-nine. An evil king Ahaz, who was leading the people of Israel, has just died, and he has been leading them in all sorts of idol worship. And God has been boiling and boiling and boiling, and is ready to pour out His judgment and His wrath upon the people of Israel. And the new king that comes into town, Ahaz's son, a guy by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah realizes that they are heading for disaster, and so Hezekiah, Second Chronicles chapter twenty-nine and verse six. Says, Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. Verse eight. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem, that's us, the people of Israel, and has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn. So there's God's wrath, but what about God's verse, mercy? Verse nine. This is why our fathers had fallen by the sword, and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Verse 10, now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that, don't miss this, here's the big point, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. See, there's another option. There's an option of mercy. There's an option of forgiveness, and it's right there in the Old Testament story, and sure enough, Uh, Hezekiah called the priests together. They began making sacrifices. He called the people of Israel together. They got down on their knees. They fasted. They wept. They prayed. They repented of their sins. And God relented. God showed mercy. The point is, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Jesus speaks about judgment just like the Old Testament revealed God's judgment, which is to say that from age to age, from Old Testament to New Testament, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. Okay. Everybody okay? That was not a good word, right? That wasn't a touchy-feely. Oh, you warm my heart this morning, Lord. Appreciate that. No, that's not what this was. But anyhow, that's our treatment of this topic for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question that we ask here each week. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, that felt very academic, to be quite honest with you. I uh, appreciate the, 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 the college course lesson that you just gave us there in the doctrinal teaching, but I mean, wh- I, I'm out here living every day, trying to get to work, trying to make, make a living. I mean, what difference does saying this make to my life? Well, that's a great question. Let's talk about that. You know, growing up, when my brother or myself, when either one of us would step out of line, uh, we knew that there was some pain coming. Right? And, and you all can remember those, those days, right? where where if we stepped out of line or we did something that mom and dad, we crossed the lines that they had set for us, we knew that there was some sort of a a punishment coming our way. And my brother felt a lot more of that pain than I did, if you know what I'm saying. Now, my mom and dad, they didn't spank us because they were on some sort of a power trip. They didn't spank us because they were on some sort of an ego need. They did it because they had drawn some lines in our lives, and they knew that the spanking, that that punishment that was coming our way, was for our own well-being my parents drew those lines in our lives for our own protection for our safety and for the development of our character and we knew that when we stepped across those lines that we were in danger of uh, of punishment coming our way and our parents knew that we were in danger of hurting ourselves and so they knew they had a responsibility to try and keep us on the right path and so my brother and i paid the price from time to time when we stepped over that line You know, friends, when it comes to our relationship with the Lord Jesus, we are just like that. God regards us as his children, and God says, John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands." So the first motivation for us to obey and to do what God wants us to do to live in a God-honoring way is because we recognize all that God's done for us. We recognize that Jesus has shed his blood on the cross for our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty for our sins one day. So that we could spend eternal life with God in heaven. And so we recognize that God in his great grace. And God's great mercy to us. There's just, we just, it causes us to want to respond. To reciprocate in kind. To want to obey uh, the Lord. However, God also recognizes. He says, hey look, I'm not stupid. right? I know that there's, I'm going to give you an additional motivator in your life. To help you stay on the right path. You know, over in the book of Deuteronomy, God says over and over for Moses to tell the people of God to obey him because they love him. Deuteron- but then in chapter 28, God gives 53 verses. So after he gets done telling them all the wonderful things that, that they are to do because they love him and gushy how much they love him and how much God loves them for 27 chapters. And then we hit chapter 28 and God says, hey, look, here's 53 verses of curses that are coming your way if you don't honor me, if you don't obey me. And so just in case that all that I do for you isn't enough, just in case my love and my mercy on display are not enough to motivate you to want to follow me and obey me, God says, hey, look, I'm going to put an additional motivator in your life, just like my mom and dad put an additional motivator in my life, and that is for us to watch out if we don't follow the Lord. Friends, one of the healthiest motivators for me is this principle. One of the reasons why I haven't done a lot of the terrible things that you know, pop to your mind that you think about doing is because of this principle. It has held me back from making those decisions in my life because I knew that there was a God on the other side of those really bad decisions who was going to say, "Hey, you know what? what you reap is what you'll sow." I'm not going to be made a fool of," God says. In the scripture we read earlier, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And why should we fear him? Because, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Friends, this theme of fearing God is repeated over and over and over in the scriptures over a hundred times. The scriptures remind us to fear God. Psalm chapter 128 and verse 1 says, Blessed are those who fear the Lord. Psalm chapter 103 and verse 13 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. And again, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Now, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Friends, we are consistently exhorted in the scriptures to fear the Lord. Now, let's be honest. There are a lot of preachers out there and a lot of churches that are teaching something different than this. They're saying, hey, look, we shouldn't. What are you talking about? Fear God. God doesn't want us to fear Him. God's our loving Heavenly Father who wants to sweep us up in His arms, who wants to love on us and show us mercy and show us great grace. Absolutely, God, that's true. God is all of that. But that's not all of who God is. God is also tremendously holy and tremendously righteous and just as a result of that. And because that's who God is, God says, hey, look, I can't just let you go out and laissez-faire, live however you want to live, and there be no consequences that come into your life as a result of those decisions. Friends, when somebody comes along and says, hey, look, you shouldn't fear God, I don't buy that because that's not the clear teaching of the Word of God. This is why Hebrews chapter... Chapter 10 and verse 31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is why Jesus put people on notice that there was judgment coming for the way that we conduct ourselves and the way we leap our, live our lives. He could have just said, hey, you know what? God's a God of love. God's a God of mercy. God's a God of forgiveness. And waited till we get to heaven till we find out, oh, well, hold on. That's not just all who God is. Instead, Jesus wanted us to have the right information so that it could be a protective motivator in our lives. Um, Proverbs chapter 16, and verse 6 says, Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. You say, Gordon, I understand all that you're saying here, but how can I increase a fear of God in my life? How can, how can I raise up or, or, uh, this, this fear, this healthy fear of God in my life? How can I have more of it? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is by spending time in the Word of God. Where did we learn about the fear of God from? We learned it from sitting down and reading and studying the Word of God. Where did we learn about God's judgment? We learned about it by reading the Word of God. Where did we learn these stories about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and how God, Jesus said these things? We learned it by spending time in the Word of God. Friends, if you want your fear to increase, then let your time of reading the Bible increase increase. Learn who God is better. Learn what His wishes are better. Watch and see what He did to people who stepped over those lines in the Scriptures better. And I promise you, your fear of God will come up, and it'll be a healthy thing, a protective uh, thing in your life. How much we fear God and how much we read and study the Word of God are directly proportional If you you feel that your fear of God is too small, I can promise you that it's because the time that you spend in the Word of God is too small. All right, let's conclude. It's interesting that David wrote a prayer in the Bible that goes like this. Psalm chapter 19 and verse 13. Keep your servant, referring to himself, away from from willful sin. That is, uh, there's a difference here. He's saying, you know, there's sometimes we sin because we stumble into a situation and we sin. He's saying, but Lord, and, that's, and David says, I repent of that, and I know that that's wrong, but Lord, don't let me get into the heinous act of willfully going in and willfully looking for an opportunity for sin, of willfully looking for opportunities to satisfy the flesh. Um, and so David says, may that desire not rule over me. You know, these kinds of sins where we go looking for the opportunity to disobey God, what we're doing is we are presuming upon the forgiveness of God. We're going into that action and saying, well, I know, you know, I know I shouldn't do this, but God's going to forgive me. It'll be all right. And then we go ahead and do our thing. Or we say, you know what, God's going to show me mercy. I know he will. And so we're presuming upon the mercy. We're presuming upon the forgiveness of God. Uh, Well, we read the Bible where it says, you know, God says, hey, look, I will forgive your sins and I will remember them no more. We read the Bible where it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And armed with verses like that, we then deliberately go seeking after, looking for and participating in these willful sins. Friends, this is the kind of attitude towards sin where we presume upon the mercy of God that is in epidemic proportions all through the church of God in the world. And that comes, friends, from televangelists and from theologically ignorant preachers who are teaching and preaching about a God that the Bible knows nothing about. Did you hear that? Let me say it for you again. This feeling that we can just presume upon the patience of God, we can presume upon God's going to be lenient with me, God's going to understand, God's going to forgive that I just need to do this. Friends, that kind of presumption, that kind of presumption, comes from theologically ignorant teaching and a theologically ignorant perspective that the bible knows of a god that the bible knows nothing about. And for the last 17 years of my ministry, friends, I've seen the results of that kind of preaching every week. Men and women and teenagers who have presumed upon the mercy of God and who have failed to be properly motivated by a healthy fear of God and the discipline that the Lord brings, And as a result, have totally messed up their lives. And so I'm here to tell you today to let the fear of God be a protective force in your life. Don't presume upon the mercy and the love of the Lord. Listen to what he said. A man will reap what he sows. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. And here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for a fresh reminder of just who you are, of your holiness, of your righteousness, that, God, you are not a God who tolerates for long our willful sin. Lord, if we are running away from you this morning, If we've been saying for some time, well, God, I just have to do this, or God, I just, this is my time. Lord, we know the truth now, that you will not be mocked that a man reaps what he sows. And so, Lord, Lord, armed with this truth from your word, may it hit the brakes this morning on some thoughts we've been having. May it end some behavior that we know has not been honoring you. And Lord, in this quiet space this morning, as we celebrate your broken body and your shed blood, bring our hearts to repentance. Lead us, Holy Spirit, into sorrow of what we have done. And may we, from this moment forward, strive to honor you We pray these things in Christ's holy name, amen.